0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge, with you on this Wednesday afternoon. You can reach us in Edmonton, for, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. Later in this hour and a much later note, we're going to talk about the latest inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Music writer and broadcaster uh, Alan Cross will join us after 2.30. So we'll look at uh, this year's class and sort of get back to that issue. Of, you know, what is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Now, Dolly Parton, for example, who is one of the inductees, initially said that she didn't feel that she should be. You know, Dolly Parton, I mean, she had some pop success, but really comes from the world of country music. So, should country artists, hip hop artists, pop artists be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or does rock and roll just kind of mean popular music in general? We'll look at all of that. We'll talk a bit about uh, some of these specific uh, artists and the impact they had on on music and and why they're in this conversation. So, uh, Alan Cross will join us uh, coming up uh, after 2.30. i got some other issues to get to as well. Of course, as uh, we've been talking about uh, yesterday and now today, uh, this uh, whole abortion issue has uh, reared its head thanks to what appears to be a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. A draft ruling leaked this week suggesting Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned. uh, Opening the door then for states... And some states have already made it clear they intend to restrict or ban abortion. It's uh, an issue, obviously, that's uh, spilled over into this country. And certainly we're hearing a lot from our political leaders about the status quo here and uh, who needs to to say what about it. So we'll get back to that issue. A few other things I want to get to as well. Uh, Meanwhile, though, I want to turn to one of the issues uh, arising from the um, recent convoy protests and blockades and the federal government's response. And a lot of this surrounded the fundraising. Uh, The convoy movement, the Freedom Convoy, used uh, some popular crowdfunding websites uh, to generate funds uh, for the protests and for the blockades and for the prolonged presence in the nation's capital. And certainly a big part of the uh, government's use of the Emergencies Act was to deal with the financial side of uh, the movement. Now, in the aftermath of all of that, uh, the federal government has uh, changed the rules around this kind of fundraising. The crowdfunding websites are now going to have to register and report transactions to FinTrack, which is the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada. So basically the anti-money laundering watchdog. So is is this a necessary step? Is this going to have any practical, real life applications in terms of uh, how these these services operate, or in, how, in terms of how future protest movements might operate? So this has been the focus of uh, some of these committee hearings. We've got this parliamentary committee uh, looking into the process uh, of invoking the Emergencies Act to deal with the pro- uh, the protest, and a lot of questions around this someone who has been following all of this very closely has written extensively about the issue uh, an expert in the fields uh, of financing and security very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon jessica davis uh, president of insight threat intelligence jessica thanks so much for joining us here welcome to the program thanks so much for having me on uh, how, how unique are these rules first of all that, that canada has brought in are we, we kind of uh, forging our own path here
0: yeah, I believe that Canada is the first country in the world to require this kind of reporting by crowdfunding websites. Most other countries um, will will consider their, their obligations in the anti-money laundering or counter-terrorist financing space to be complete when they've got reporting requirements for banks, money service businesses, um, sometimes for payment processors, so your Stripes or PayPal. Um, so Canada is really forging ahead with this, and it is um, not actually a requirement under international norms either. We have an international norm-setting body called the Financial Action Task Force who sort of set these standards um, that international or countries are meant to adhere to. And, and this is not one of those recommendations. So we're going our own way on this. I'd say.
2: I mean, is this an overreaction? How, how necessary is it to to make these kinds of changes, or at least you know revisit these rules around these these kinds of websites?
0: question because I think when we look at the regulations, there's clearly some gaps in that crowdfunding companies, crowdfunding platforms rather, weren't required to report things like suspicious transaction reports. On the other hand, a lot of the activity that they're reporting is already captured by existing regulations. So, um, you know, for example, if somebody raises $15,000 on a crowdfunding platform like gofundme and it gets sent to their canadian bank account the canadian bank is already required to report that money to FinTrack track um, under our existing rules i think that the new regulations will capture some additional activity so the suspicious activities might be a little bit different reported directly from those platforms um, but i wouldn't say there's a huge gap and it's also these crowdfunding platforms are also not the kind of thing that are really used a lot for money laundering and terrorist financing. It's just not one of the main methods we currently see. So, you know, it's a bit of a a mixed bag. Yes, there were some gaps. No, it's not a big problem. But it was clearly, the government clearly thought that it was a big issue in this case.
2: And are we talking about certain kinds of donations or donations of a certain size? Like if I contribute $20 to a fundraiser for, you know, family who's, they a fire at their house. I mean, what, why, why would FinTrack care about that, for example?
0: so FinTrack won't care about the majority of those smaller transactions, the smaller donations. If you're giving a donation of $10,000 or more, that will automatically get reported to FinTrack. Um, but there's also some other provisions. So if you're um, a sanctioned individual, for instance, like a, a Russian oligarch, that'll get reported to FinTrack, and, and, the, and the transaction will probably actually be blocked. Um if you do something really suspicious, then that will get reported to CenTrack as well. It will be interesting to see how these platforms actually define suspicion when the activity is really limited in terms of what people can do uh, in terms of financial transactions with those sites. Um, so, it will be an interesting one. And I think it's, it's also quite interesting to note that this is uh, an extensive addition to our regulations. Yeah. So. You know, recent reporting suggests that FinTrack thinks it'll cost the platforms themselves 18 to $20 million over the next 10 years in administrative compliance costs. Wow. And FinTrack's budget also increased really significantly this year, uh, in part to compensate for some of these changes. Well,
2: that's interesting. So, and, and that's likely a cost that's going to get passed on to those who use these services, right?
0: Well, it's a cost that we all bear, <laughs> yeah. either in terms of taxes that we pay to the government or taxes or costs from these services exactly. So, you know, ultimately this is getting more expensive for all of us. Um, You know, that's actually the nature of compliance and anti-money laundering legislation and regulations in Canada. It's sort of a collective good that we all pay for, but it's also maybe not the top vulnerability or issue that I would have um, pointed to six months ago.
2: It's interesting because, you know, as, as there's this scrutiny underway now of the use of the Emergencies Act, and, and obviously that, that those emergency powers have now ended, this is kind of unique in the sense that this was something adopted under the Emergencies Act, and now this is going to become a, a, basically a permanent fixture.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is something that the government did tell us was going to be permanent when the Emergencies Act was imposed. Um, so they did make it very clear that this is something that was very likely. I think that sort of that. Kind of language was what was put forward at the time so to a certain extent it kind of helped the platform it encouraged the platforms to register and comply because they knew that it was coming anyways but the thing that's quite interesting about all of this is that when we talk about the convoy itself the vast vast majority of that money uh, was raised legally and none of it was terrorist financing or money laundering. Mm. So the actual problem that this is ostensibly meant to capture isn't really capturing it at all. So it's a bit of an interesting one. Now, I'll I'll put a little caveat on that saying, you know, as soon as the uh, protests and occupation was declared illegal, I would say that um, some of that money could be considered process of crime or financing of mischief. So there's a bit of wiggle room there. But but that was a bit late in the game. Yeah. Um, a lot of that money was raised well before that, so it really didn't come to the money laundering or terrorist financing level that is the threshold for FinTrack receiving reports.
2: Yeah, I don't know exactly when the GoFundMe was set up for the convoy, but it was certainly early this year, and probably some of the, the planning around all of this goes well back into 2021. So, I mean, if hypothetically then this FinTrack requirement existed... Would it have had any impact at all on the organizing of the protests, the ability to use these these, these sites and, and to raise this money in the first place?
0: I'm not convinced that this regulation would have changed much. Um, the, the GoFundMe for the convoy was set up, as, as you correctly identified, in, I think it was early January. Um, again, so well before anything crossed over a threshold into illegal activity or threat-related activity, you know, at that time it all looked very above board. Um, So if this regulation were in place, the only thing that might have changed was reporting to FinTrack of transactions of $10,000 or more or suspicious activity or transaction reports. So if we did see some um, large donations coming in, particularly from the United States, for example, then that would have been reported. Um, But I'm not really sure what that would have changed in terms of even the government's response, because we actually knew a lot of this already just by looking at the GoFundMe's publicly available page.
2: Well, And GoFundMe is maybe, I guess we could, for lack of a better term, say they're more mainstream. And, mm-hmm. you know, through all of this, a lot of the, the convoy fundraising shifted from GoFundMe to the website GiveSendGo. And as you've noted in, in your writings, a Give, send GiveSendGo has already said, look, Canadian courts don't have jurisdiction over what we do, so even though we can put this requirement into to writing, into law, into our regulations, uh, you know, if we've got companies that exist outside of our borders and therefore outside of our laws, what what say do we have?
0: There does come a point at, at, at which if these companies want to operate in Canada, they have to abide by our laws. Um, so, give and go might be opting out of operating in Canada by refusing to recognize Canadian jurisdiction. There is some concern, of course, that, you know, given the nature of the Internet and the, and the nature of um, sort of decentralized financial activity these days, that, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult to circumvent any blocking of that website, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through a variety of different means. I don't think that it's one of those things that would be a uh, particularly big concern, um, but it would be up to the companies to comply with, with our rules and regulations, and if they don't, to either face being blocked from Canada while having their transactions blocked in Canada or facing pretty significant fines for the good check.
2: Interesting. And, you know, as we continue the scrutiny, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously the Emergency Act had a lot of different provisions that the government used to deal with the... Um, with the convoy protests, you know, a lot of it was financial beyond the, the FinTrack reporting. You know, the, the government did go after. Authorities were able to go after bank accounts, other financial accounts. Do we have a good understanding at this point yet in terms of how that was all done, the impact of all of that?
0: This is the kind of thing that I'm still unpacking. And it's the kind of, and, and it's really the kind of thing that House uh, the, the Commons Committee looking at and the separate inquiry I think will look at as well uh, in terms of the, Implementation and activity of the of those emergency measures, but from what we understand so far, it seems as though the RCMP provided financial institutions, so banks, credit unions, other financial entities, with a list of individuals who were deemed to be sort of ringleaders of the convoy, okay. and directed those institutions to freeze those accounts, um, which to, to you know, when we look at how the, the orders were actually written, they were written much broader than that. So this is a more narrow application than what we saw in writing. At, at the time, the writing was much more, um, could have been donors, could have been even small amounts of money. It was, you know, it was very, very broad, and I had some pretty serious concerns about that. The application was more um, narrow. But I think, you know, that we still have so many big questions about how these were applied, their proportionality. Um, And what impact the freezing of these accounts had on the individuals who were participating in the protest, potentially the individuals who were affected by their accounts being frozen. So, you know, if anybody was paying child support, if they had a hard time paying rent, et cetera, and whether or not these economic or financial measures had a material impact on ending the convoy. The Minister of Public Safety has said that they were important, that they were effective, but we haven't really seen any evidence from the government about how, how or why that was the case.
2: We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more at InsightThreatIntel.com. I should also mention as well, you have a book out recently. It's called Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. Jessica, thanks so much for your insight here today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Uh, Jessica Davis, as mentioned, uh, author of the book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism of the 21st Century, is president of InCell Threat Intelligence, also president of the Canadian Association of Security and Intelligence Studies. So an expert in the field uh, of where uh, laws and financing uh, kind of uh, intertwine. And some thoughts from her on, you know, specifically these rules around these crowdfunding websites and also some of those lingering questions about how the Emergencies Act powers were used on the financial side of things. <music> Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So, yeah, I mean, this is, is significant, certainly in American context. It appears as though the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to overturn the uh, 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, uh, a decision that uh, enshrined abortion rights. And, and look, I mean, courts can revisit cases they've dealt with previously, and it's possible that a court might see one thing or one thing one way at a certain time and maybe years later view that thing a little bit differently. Now, this has become a big cultural and political issue in the United States, and I think it's been a concerted effort to get uh, judges on the Supreme Court who might take this view of Roe v. Wade. So there, there's been an effort, I, I think in a way, a very open effort for some time to overturn it. I don't think you could say the same in Canada. Obviously, uh, we have a similar situation in that the R.V. Morgenthaler decision of 1988 from the Supreme Court of Canada enshrined abortion rights here. Now, there are different rulings and obviously was a different uh, situation to begin with. Uh, R.V. Morgenthaler struck down a part of the Criminal Code of Canada – uh, Roe versus Wade dealt with uh, a situation in Texas. But, you know, they dealt with constitutional rights. And, and both Canada and the U.S. have systems where we expect the courts to uphold those constitutional rights and strike down legislation deemed to be unconstitutional. Is it possible, though, that a future Canadian Supreme Court could take another look, a different look at R.V. Morgan-Toller? What would the implications be? Remember, R.V. Morgenthaler did not preclude Canadian governments from ever having an abortion law. There was a brief attempt afterward by the Mulroney government to bring forward a new abortion law. And eventually that, uh, I believe, it uh, died in the Senate. So joining us to talk a bit about some of the parallels and whether what happened in the U.S. could at least theoretically happen in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Carrie Frock, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Brunswick. Professor Frock, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, So let me get your thoughts, first of all, on, you know, what appears to be the the case with uh, Roe v. Wade in the United States and and what the implications of that might be.
3: Sure. Uh, Well, they don't have any direct implications for us in Canada, of course, um, because um, completely different uh, constitutional system. Um, We have a a totally different um, uh, history. Um, the Fourteenth Amendment, which is what the the, uh, the the new decision is based on, was an 1868 document. Our document is is 1982. So, along with that, a very different era in history. There's different implications from that. And the Supreme Court in the United States seemed to be leaning very hard into the fact that um, abortion was was criminalized at the time of the Fourteenth Amendment. That there was real um, no history of abortion rights at that time and taking a very, very narrow textual approach to their constitution in a way that um, we don't really see in Canada. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not really that uh, concerned that uh, the kind of reasoning that we see in the uh, this draft decision is going to make its way into Canadian law. Canadian law um in relation to Morgenthaler is is pretty well settled. Um, the uh, Morgan uh, dicta, both um, the majority on section seven and security of the person, and and the concurring decision from Madam Justice Wilson, the only woman on the court, concerning liberty, um, is is very solid in Canada. Um, but the question is how it, how is it going to affect us culturally, socially? Um, is that going to embolden um, the kinds of uh, provincial laws like in my um, home province of New Brunswick where um, funding for abortion clinics is is uh, not uh, available um, and there's all sorts of um, barriers on access um, is that going to embolden um, the majorities of other legislatures to try to do something similar is that going to embolden people to um, try to impede women access um other informal ways um we'll we'll wait and see on that
2: uh, it's interesting i mean there, there's some overlapping language I, I suppose, between our our uh, section seven of the charter and, and the 14th amendment uh, of the u.s constitution but um there were different cases in a lot of ways what, what do you see as similarities or parallels between roe versus wade and rv morgenthaler
3: well, Roe versus Wade itself um, rely very heavily on the notion of a right to privacy um, and the idea that um, abortion is a decision to be made between a, a woman and her doctor and we don't really see that kind of language like there's all sorts of cases that do talk about the right to privacy but that's more in relation to um, search and seizure um, uh, to state uh, intrusion on on personal information, that kind of thing. Uh, So what the parallels are is, um, you know, the the Supreme Court in the United States in this opinion talks a little bit about equality and rather ironically says that if you are um, restricting a a medical procedure that by its very nature is you know, relates to one sex only, that's not a sex-based distinction, which I think would have a lot of Canadian constitutional is scratching their head um, and it also says that um, you know there's no right to uh, abortion in the text um, that was um, something that was in the dissent in our 1988 um, Morgan Taller decision and that didn't carry the day um, and it also says that liberty doesn't include the decision um, whether or not to terminate a pregnancy and again um, that was in the the concurring decision in Morgan taller, but um, perhaps more significantly, the majority of the court picked that up in in subsequent decisions and and cited it with approval. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the kinds of issues that the U.S. Supreme Court is grappling with and seeming to decide uh, against uh, women's uh, right to um, full uh, reproductive health services is is something that really is old news in Canada and has, has been dispensed with along
2: Time ago, interesting well and yeah i believe both both cases both rulings actually both had had two dissenters which is kind of an odd coincidence but yeah mm-hmm. the thinking in the u.s was okay that look if we're on the part of at least you know those who wanted to overturn this let's find judges who who see this as those two dissenters did let's try to make them the majority on the supreme court and it took what well, i guess almost 50 years but it appears as though they got to that point now mm-hmm. in canada I mean, obviously, Supreme Court rulings uh, are are significant. They they set precedents. But a Supreme Court can come back and revisit, maybe even come to a different conclusion uh, on on an issue than, than than an earlier court did. There's nothing that precludes that, right?
3: Um, absolutely. And we see this, um, the, the Carter uh, decision yeah. on medical assistance in dying um, took a different tack than the earlier decision of Rodriguez. Um, we saw this with um, sex work and prostitution as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but courts are, are loath to overturn precedent. And what our uh, court has said is that there has to be um, some basis, some evolution in the law or in society, in our understanding of rights, that makes it uh, appropriate to to revisit a prior decision. So, for example, in Carter, um, there is a a much longer track record about appropriate protections for vulnerable people um, in uh, medical assistance and dying that the Corden Rodriguez didn't have. So you would have to see um, some sort of evidence that there's been a a sea change in, in the law or in society that makes it appropriate.
2: Because I I think, you know, to some extent, a lot of this seems like a moot point in Canada that, uh, you know, the the ruling is the reality and, you know, that, you know, even politicians who might be inclined to want to go down this path in a policy sense realize the futility of going up against this ruling. But even absent this ruling i mean or even sorry with this ruling it still doesn't preclude a government from passing an abortion law as the government attempted to do following the morgan taller ruling so what is the context in which uh, uh, any government in canada federally provincially could introduce some sort of legislation pertaining to abortion
3: well, they can definitely try. There, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. And then it's the question on, you know, how how it can grind through the the court system, um, and and really, uh, I. I don't think there's much appetite at the federal level, although I think I counted up the the dozens of private members' bills that have been attempted, that have tried to uh, essentially bring uh, abortion restrictions back. And there's, you know, quite a few every year. So um, politicians that um, are um, uh, hostile to women's uh, reproductive rights are constantly testing the waters and, and, and putting up these test balloons, but none, obviously, have have passed I think the the more um, significant issue is in the provincial context and um, the provision of health services and using the funding power and the control over medical services to impose barriers and, and to um, narrow um, the access quite a bit. And um, there hasn't been any definitive rulings on that. But for uh, another Morgenthaler decision, after the one that we've been talking about, uh, Nova Scotia tried to impose um, some rules um, about um, saying when uh, doctors were committing professional misconduct by um, uh, performing abortions, by restricting funding, and those were struck down by our Supreme Court on the basis that they violated the Division of Powers. So there's considerable restrictions both at the uh, the federal and, and provincial level um, the reason why in New Brunswick um, we still have these uh, remnants of an earlier time is um, you know simply um, women seeking reproductive health services um, they don't have the the kind of money or potentially the the desire to be the public face of this issue and and to go through this costly court process to, to strike down this law so that's why the Canadian Civil the Civil Liberties Association is is doing that for us in, in New Brunswick here. So it's more of a you know very practical issues um, that um, are at the fore of abortion access in, in Canada right now.
2: Very interesting. Well, we'll leave it there, Professor Frock. Appreciate the insight on all of this, and thank you so much. Make some time for us here today. Well, thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Professor Carrie Frock, professor of law at the University of New Brunswick. So kind of an overview of you know, where, where some similarities lie between these two rulings in both countries and, and our, our systems of, of law and, and constitutional law, but where there's some big differences as well. So what is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and who belongs in it? It's an interesting question. Rock and roll can mean different things. I I think rock is a specific kind of genre within music. But rock and roll also, and maybe it goes back even to, you know, sort of the birth of pop music in the 50s. Rock and roll is kind of synonymous with pop music or popular music. But it's still something that people disagree on. Anyway, so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exists. And it it basically exists to, to honor achievements in popular music most popular music so it does get a little confusing because there was a country music hall of fame i believe uh recently or about to be launched there's something uh, called the hip-hop or the rap music hall of fame but really the rock and roll hall of fame is is kind of seen as it the biggest names ever in music that's who belongs there this year was interesting because one of the inductees actually pointed all of this out uh dolly parton initially said when she was nominated that she didn't really want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Didn't feel she belonged there. Asked that her name be taken off the ballot. Is she relented? And here she is, one of the inductees in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But looking at this year's list, if you think about, like, the biggest names in music, acts that have had the most significant influence, like the obvious slam dunks, I don't know if there's one on here. I mean, Lionel Richie stands out as someone who's achieved a lot in music. He's one of the uh, inductees. And we'll go through them with our next guest and kind of unpack it a little bit more. But Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, Eminem, Eurythmics, Dolly Parton, Carly Simon, and Lionel Richie. And kind of, sort of, Judas Priest. Joining us for his thoughts on the latest inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alan Cross, writer broadcaster, historian uh, in the field of music, host of the ongoing podcast, the ongoing history of new music and uh, much more. His website, a journal of musical com. Alan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, this is the time of year when I complain about the rock and roll. Hall
2: of Fame. <laughs> you do, but it's a little different this year because, you know, Dolly Parton has noted, you know, kind of called out this, this whole process, didn't she?
1: Well, she did, but she did it much too late. She, uh, said that look at i don't want to split the votes i don't think i belong in the rock and roll hall of fame please take my name off the ballot but it was much too late simply because all the ballots had already gone up and the voting had already begun and it turns out that she uh, she got in and not only that but in the fan voting she finished fifth so okay dolly's in whether she likes it or not
2: uh, so I ran down the, the list of names so we can talk about each of these here, but it, it seems to me that, you know, this kind of an honor, that you're talking about popularity, you're talking about influence, you're talking about longevity, you're also talking about excellence, which is a little more subjective. I mean, how, how do you view it, first of all?
1: Well, uh, one of the things, I'm going to talk about the big problem I have with the Rock of the Hall of Fame, and that's that they, the board of directors and the people that vote have this thing about expanding the definition of what rock is, yeah. and they go through all kinds of philosophical contortions to to make this happen. They say that look rock music was uh, the birth uh, was birth because of a bunch of different genres coming together uh, country music western music hibble music r and b jazz, and so on Therefore because it is the amalgamation of all these different genres, we have to acknowledge the people who made all this happen so that rock and roll could be born in the first place. Okay, I get that. So you want to look back into the 30s and the 40s and, and the early 50s and talk about the pioneers who helped bring all this music together. But then, as we've gone through the last couple of decades, it gets a bit weird. For example, uh, there is nothing that says rock to me more than Whitney Houston. Yet, she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> if you were a rock fan, Whitney Houston was one of the people that you absolutely detested. She <laughs> was the antithesis of, of rock and roll. Yeah. This year, we have Lionel Richie. Uh, seriously? Uh, Lionel Richie belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? But he
2: belongs I, I, in I, I, some Hall of Fame.
1: Well, oh, sure. sure. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he very successful uh, songwriter, very successful performer, sold an awful lot of records. Absolutely in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like uh, like with songs like "Hello" and "Dancing on the Ceiling." And no, I mean those are those are either the, the, those are pure pop songs. And again, if if you were around. When Leonard Ritchie was at his, at his biggest, 83, '84, 85, '86, uh, and you were a rock fan, I mean, no, this is not rock and roll, yet there he is in, in, in the rock hall.
2: I mean, could they, I mean, if they changed the name, like if this was the, you know the popular Music Hall of Fame, would it be a different conversation?
1: Uh, it would be, but I you know it, it's not going to happen. I, I yeah. think what the, the rock hall has this thing about making it as inclusive as, as possible. And, um, you know, again, everybody from the, the chairman to the, the, the CEO and everybody on down is, is determined to make this as wide-ranging as possible. Now, the other thing you have to consider is that there's about 900 members-ish uh, who, who vote on these things. And, you know, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on. There's a lot of arm twisting that happens, you know, get my artist in there because, well, it does pay off career wise as, you know, you can say that this artist is a rock and roll hall of fame inductee. I mean, that does carry some sort of, of cachet. Um, But, you know, when, when you're a, a fan, and you're looking at this from the outside, you're going, what? I mean, let's just look. I mean, it, the we, we can look at the better luck next year category, the, the artists that got snubbed this year. Uh, Devo did not make it. Rage Against the Machine did not make it. Beck did not make it. Mm-hmm. And the two most egregious snubs this year for me are the MC5, mm-hmm. very important Pre-punk band from Detroit that set the stage for so much of the the punk music that came in the punk and alternative music that came in the nineteen seventies, and the New York Dolls. If there's no New York Dolls, there's no Ramones. If there's no Ramones, there's no Clash. If there's no Clash, there's no Sex Pistols. You know, on and on and on and on, and how they could be snubbed is is absolutely beyond me. Rage Against the Machine, you know, fantastic. You know, really important group. For in the 1990s and beyond, uh, they got snubbed again. So I I, I, I don't understand the, motive, the you know where these people are coming from. Um, they'll put Carly Simon in, they'll put Dolly Parton in, they'll put Lionel Richie in, but but they won't put in these genuine rock and roll acts that had a tremendous amount of influence on music going forward. Um, it, it, it just you know, and then they invent something—this musical excellence award. I, I don't understand what the difference is between being a uh, being inducted in the performer category and then getting this sort of <laughs> consolation prize.
2: And that was Judas uh, Priest this year.
1: Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, Judas Priest has been has been on the ballot before many times, and you know, a lot of rock fans say, you know, Priest should be in, Priest should be in. Well, oh, fine, they put Priest in, but they put it with a, it, it seems like a little asterisk. Yeah. Yes, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they're not as a performer. They're there in the Musical Excellence Award. What the heck does that mean? Oh, so, I, I can't, just, just, and, and I think you know, so I, I get really exercised about mm-hmm. this. Um, the, 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 we need to separate the museum from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The museum is fantastic. I mean, if you want to see artifacts from the history of rock music, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Uh, but the hall of fame you know a, again it gets tremendously it's been tremendously watered down and i i it it, it you know would, would dolly parton end up being incorporated into the hip hop hall of fame no would would m&m another inductee this year yeah. be inducted into the country music hall of fame no so it's it's this, this expanding definition of what we, the public, are supposed to consider rock and roll. It's a bit of social engineering here that just drives me nuts.
2: Yeah, it is it is weird, especially when you look at this year's nominees. So the, the ones that at least make sense to you, or maybe it's only one. So Pat Benatar seems yeah. like an obvious fit here then.
1: Yeah, I mean, she was... you you've got to go back to the early 1980s, and you remember that, that hard-walking women almost didn't exist we had hearts we had the runaways then joan Jett came out of the runaways and a, and a few others but there was a it was a desert when it came to hard rocking women in the early 1980s pat benatar absolutely along with her partner and husband neil drawler absolutely she should be there uh Duran, Duran, you know what i'll even go with them because um They were at one time, you know, the Fab Five. They were the biggest band in the world. And they were, you know, a very, very, very important part of that new wave, early alternative thing. Um, Eminem, another first-time nominee. They'll say that he's not a rock artist, but eh, okay. Uh, There's another example of how they're expanding on that definition of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Um, Eurythmics. Yes, again. Annie Lennox was a force back in the '80s. Dave Stewart was her partner. They created some very important, uh, you know, he, he, you know, but not just their music, but the videos they created back then, and how they, uh, you know, the genre, uh, sorry, gender bending and all all that kind of stuff. Very important, very important part of that first generation of MTV artists. Dolly uh, Part, we've talked about. Carly Simon, you know, I thought she was a very decent '70s pop star singer songwriter but rock and roll hall of fame and then Lionel Richie I think I've already made my point
2: there right and so we we look ahead uh, possibly to next year you mentioned some of the groups that uh, were snubbed this year might seem like obvious ones next year but you had Eminem who was you know on the ballot for the first time he goes in so if a group gets snubbed one year it doesn't make them a, a slam dunk for subsequent years necessarily does it
1: no no I mean uh you know, look at uh, you know Judas Priest. They were on the ballot a billion times before <laughs> they got in with their little asterisk. So, and where's Iron Maiden? Are, are they in the rock? I don't even. I don't think they're even in the rock and roll. Effect. Uh, there's just a lot of you know inconsistencies here that uh, I, I I just have a hard time with. Now, people will want to argue with me, and and great. I mean, that's yeah. part of it too. That really is part of it too, because um, I think any time and you get people questioning and debating and discussing music. I think that's a good thing. And there is the opportunity for people uh, who are against something to have their minds expanded and their minds changed. Great. Fantastic. I'm all for that. I've just laid out my arguments. If anybody wants to fight, let's go.
2: (laughs) Much more at a journal of musical com. Alan, always appreciate it. Thanks for making time for us here today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
2: Cheers. Alan Cross, a music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the ongoing history of New Music podcast and more of his writings, including his thoughts on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees at a journal of com. Look, there's no denying Dolly Parton, it was one of the biggest stars just in music, period, right? Uh, and, and you look at what she achieved as an artist, uh, it, was, it was massive. And, you know, I'm she's deserving of some kind of honor but in what context she certainly belongs in the country music hall of fame i mean really she was a country artist you know nine to five was kind of a pop hit she did islands in the stream that was uh, that was a pop hit but really i mean of course she was a country artist so once you've opened that door then theoretically any country music artist who would be in the country music hall of fame could also be in The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? So you got that argument, whether it's the right genre for what is otherwise a huge artist. Dolly Parton, Lionel Richie, huge artists. Then there's the merit argument. Carly Simon, as Alan says, was a decent 70s pop star, had some hits. Most notably, You're So Vain. But is that Hall of Fame worthy achievement? So, that debate's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the same every year. Uh, are these artists that belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Should it still be called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
1: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.